Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established your strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hello, Hill City. Good morning. My name is Danny McNamara. I serve as the executive director of spiritual formation here at Hill City. And I want to welcome you to our gathering. We are so glad you're here. If you're new here, a very special welcome to you. And my prayer today is that your heart would be encouraged by the preaching of God's word. I have a list here in front of me of all the people that I have met over this past year. And this week as I was preparing this sermon, it's like I had one eye on the text and one eye on the people of Hill City Can I just say, it has been awesome to get to know you guys over the past year and to see you worship this morning. I can't see you right now. I can just see shadows, but I've got real names on this paper. And just know this week that you were prayed for. Here at Hill City, we want to be a church family that is growing in spiritual maturity. This is a place where you can get connected and grow And we grow together, and we have a passion to know God through the means of his word. And for us this morning, this means Psalm 8. So let's invite the risen Christ first to interpret scripture to us anew this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, please, please, Father, speak to us through your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, may we see Jesus this morning and hear his kind voice. And it's in his name we ask you this. Amen. Hopefully the the text is projected there on the back screen and you can see it. This is Psalm 8. It's a short psalm. It's all there, nine verses. Let's start with the title. First, notice the title of Psalm 8. And titles are part of the inspired Hebrew text. They can help us historically situate the psalm in a world, in a time, in a place. You know, I'm reminded this week of the Bible is the real world. We're invited into that world. And I love historically situating myself in that world, time, and place. And notice that this psalm is for the music director. I can still remember in northwestern Pennsylvania growing up in school, and our music director was intense. I was in choir. I did not want to cross her. 
This psalm is for the music director. What we're reading this morning is a hymn, and it probably came to be used in Israel's liturgy. This hymn has rhythm, it has meter, it has alliteration, it has structure in the form of two stanzas, and it's written by David. We know that David was musically inclined. I wish I was musically inclined, honestly. I have no musical ability. You're going to see that this morning probably if I break out in song. I might. Um, I've got no musical ability, but I love singing. David wrote some of his real-life situations. He put them to prayers and songs, and I think that's what we have here. This is David's meditation of praise on the creation account. It's divine commentary on Genesis 1 under the inspiration of God. We call this the Old Testament use of the Old Testament. I love it. In this psalm, we're going to see the theme of God's majesty in the very first verse. And then it's going to be put on display in two stanzas. First in creation, and then paradoxically, it's going to be put on display in mankind. The vision of David in this psalm spans from the creation of the world to the end of time when God makes all things right. Right in the middle of this psalm, in the exact center, we're going to see, just like the author of Hebrews saw, we're going to see Jesus Christ the one who took on the designation, the Son of Man, crowned with glory and honor. Look at Psalm 8, 1a, the first line. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the theme of the psalm. It frames the hymn. You'll notice verse 1 and then verse 9. The theme is restated on the back end. That's by intention. Notice also this direct address. O Lord, our Lord. David's direct address is directed to Yahweh, the sovereign master or Lord. This is the God of Israel, the one whose name was revealed to Moses. Remember when Moses asked, who should I tell them that you are? This is in Exodus 3. Who should I tell them that you are? And God said, tell them I am who I am. Or I will be who I will be. Yahweh was an ever-present help for Israel. The presence of God is an incredible theme traced throughout the Old Testament that runs into the New Testament. It's important to know that we go from Yahweh in the Old Testament to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament. This is our triune God. We pray in his name. We're saved by his name. We're baptized in his name. By the way, I love Baptism Sunday at Hill City Church. Holy smokes. I love it. I can't wait for our next one. If you're here and you want to get baptized, please sign up. We are healed and we have life in his name. The Hebrew word that translates name here also stands for God's reputation. You know, there's names that simply evoke a context, a reputation. I remember as a young boy taking a Dale Carnegie course in, in, in Pennsylvania and learning that a person's name to him or to her is the sweetest and most important sound in any language. 
Danny McNamara. It's got a good ring to it, doesn't it? I love nicknames. Danny Mac. I've loved learning your names. We get this. I'll never forget getting tickets to Hamilton in Kansas City. I heard Hamilton's coming to Springfield in February or March. It's going to be amazing. I'd love to see it again. But I'll never forget that night going with Kara to that musical, that Broadway production. I was not prepared for that night. I had no clue what this was about. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done. But just you wait. Just you wait. I mean, I told you I can't sing worth a flip. (laughs) This was incredible. I learned a slice of history that night, again, through the power of a name. But notice also this line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the acknowledgement of God's people. To be clear, not all people on the earth know the Lord or acknowledge his sovereignty, but the faithful do. That's us. That's us. And this is a faith statement from those who acknowledge him as Lord. But notice also David's overcome with awe and majesty. This is how I want to be. I love that the Holy Spirit, the the actual presence of God inside of us engenders a sense of awe and wonder about God. We were born for this. We were born to praise the name of the Lord. This is how I want to lead our home this week. I like how H.B. Charles said it. If he was an average God, he'd be worthy of average praise. But great is the Lord. May your expression of praise to him this morning be true all week long, not just a Sunday morning thing. And notice the adjective here, majestic, awesome. This is not an overstatement. This is not sensationalistic language. It's not an exaggeration. You know, a a little detail that I observed this week in the text. I love to be Sherlock Holmes in the text a little detail I saw was this alliteration this week with the, the, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And it, so it goes, oh Lord, and then you get this our Lord and it's, it's, it's Adenenu. But then you get this how majestic and it goes Adenenu, ma adir. You get two Alephs back to back. And you can, it's as if you're in, Dave, in David's pen. I wish we could hear this, this, this hymn sung in, in its original. You know, there's meaning wrapped up in acoustics. And it's tough to capture that in English. I like how one Hebrew scholar tried, though. He said, oh, Lord, our master, how majestic. What was there with two olives, he tried to capture with two M's. Oh, Lord, our master, how majestic is your name. Notice the pronoun here, the personal pronoun, our Lord. This makes this acknowledgement from David, it's deeply personal. You know, it's one thing to say God. It's another thing to say my God. There's a difference there. Don't miss that pronoun. 
All the nations should join David in the nation he embodies. David, as Israel's king, is aware of his unique role to extend Yahweh's glory. This is the kind of king Yahweh wants, one who loves his name and wants his reputation to be recognized. You know, my dream is to write a systematic theology of God at the end of my life, answering the big question, who is God? We know that God is good. We say this up in HC Kids a lot. It's one of our five pillar truths on the wall. God, God called us for our praises. So yes, God exists, but what good is it if nobody knows? I suppose the stones would cry out, just like we read about in Luke. But we're a church here that acknowledges this faith statement. His praise shall continually be on our lips. Notice what's next. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the mouth of children and nursing babes, you have, you have ordained praise on account of your adversaries so that you might put an end to the vindictive enemy. This is the first stanza of the hymn following the theme. David now develops his theme and he answers the question of how God's name or God's reputation is majestic in all the earth. You know, in the first line, we saw his name was majestic on the earth, and now we see that God has set his splendor above the heavens. This phrase, above the heavens, is the space above the earth, what the ancients thought of as a transparent dome. You know, we're exactly in the right spot to observe the heavens. I learned that this week. We have more knowledge now of that splendor than anybody before us, including David. Yeah, I'm out, I, I am certainly, I am certainly out over my skis when it comes to science and math as it relates to outer space. I do have a globe in my office and I love to look at it. I'm a map guy. Ask my wife. I, I have the hardest time with Google Maps. Every day for a lunch appointment, I'm calling her. How do I get to this place? She's like, you have a smartphone. I'm like, I know, I don't know how to use it. But give me an old school map, lights out, boom goes the dynamite. When it comes to astrophysics or the Hubble Space Telescope, I need to invite my kids up here. They love the 5,000 facts books. We need a brief excursus on the universe we inhabit. What, what about the number of galaxies in the observable universe? What is there, two, two trillion and each one of these galaxies has a hundred billion stars. There's more galaxies than sand on the seashore. And the sheer size of these galaxies, it's incomprehensible. And then throw in the speed of light and a light year and I'm undone. We can't appreciate where David is going in this psalm if we don't look up first. And see the splendor of God above the heavens. Notice, notice the, how the direct address continues. From the mouth of children and nursing babes, you have ordained praise on account of your adversaries. So that you might put an end to the vindictive enemy. This verse is interesting to me. David, as Israel's king, is aware that the extension of God's glory will come into conflict with the kings of the nations and their plot against God's anointed. There's no conflict in Genesis 1 and 2, but David is aware of Genesis 3 and the introduction of sin into the world. But notice here, God's going to bring an end to this, to this wickedness. David knows it. 
the enemies of God seek to establish their own dominion. We saw this back in Psalm 3 with Absalom, David's son. He attempted to usurp his own father's throne. You know, this week I so appreciated um, Pastor Brad's reminder to us, the staff at Hill City. Wednesday morning, he, he just got up and led us that we're fighting a spiritual battle. It's, it's not a battle against flesh and blood. You know, John 12, 31 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. And the spiritual battle going on today is the same battle that was going on back then in David's day. It's, it is faith versus unbelief. Recently, someone asked me if I found it more difficult to trust God or obey God. And I had to think about it. It felt like a trap question. I think it can be a false dichotomy to separate trust from obedience because here's the deal. You are trusting God when you obey him and vice versa. You are obeying God when you trust him. Notice what defeats God's enemies here. It's from the mouth of children and nursing babes. You have ordained praise. This metaphor is tough. I like the, I like the, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, when it says, by the mouth of babes and infants thou hast founded a bulwark. It, we know that the mouth of babes can't found a bulwark or lay a foundation. This is unconventional. What is being described here is that the speech and prayers of the meek is how God defeats his enemies. David knows this. God chooses the weak and vulnerable things of the world to shame the strong. And it's often through unexpected means. It's through the grateful praise of God's dependent children that God defeats his enemies. Praise is how you win. Praise on our lips and faith in our hearts. So we see God's splendor is set above the heavens and it's mediated through those who praise him. You know, when we were at the lake last summer, our, our, long, our youngest son, Ligon, he was six at the time. This was one of the most precious things I've ever seen. He took mom aside in the middle of the swimming day and he said, he said he wanted to give his heart to God. He took her by the hand and he walked outside behind the house and he asked, he literally asked Kara, my wife, his mom, mom, is this a good spot? Such powerful words through vulnerable channels. Yes, Ligon, this is a perfect spot to give your heart to God. Sometimes I will hear a child say something that is so profound. You know, children have access to divine power, and we're the little ones. I'm reminded of, 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 of uh, how Psalm 8, 2 proved to be during, it proved to be true during Jesus' day. Remember when Jesus was cleansing the temple and the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And the scribes and the priests became indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus responds, yes, I hear them and I approve. Have you never read Psalm 8? Don't you know what the meaning of Psalm 8 is? Don't you realize how the world really works? Jesus picked up this psalm. He applies it to his own situation. And of course, this theme, power through weakness, it becomes the Apostle Paul's paradigm for Christian leadership. You're going to talk about leadership today within the church. It's different than the world describes. It's power through weakness. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. These are the ironic processes of God. Some individuals may appear weak and inadequate, but our God works through unexpected means. Here's the question. Are you okay with being a nobody because you know you're a somebody to God? Notice the second stanza. When I look up at your heavens, verse 3, which your fingers made, and I see this moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? David now reinforces the first stanza, but he does it by narrowing down to first person, I. You know, we can easily picture David as a shepherd looking up into the sky. You know, I'll never forget that Iowa night. Christmas Eve in Iowa. I love Iowa. My wife's from Iowa. It's my favorite state. Go Hawks. No Hawkeyes in here. Okay. I'll never forget that Christmas night. Christmas Eve, we're walking down the road. It was so clear. It's 10 degrees outside. We're all bundled up. It's dark. The snow was crunchy underneath our feet, and the stars were amazing. Never forget that. And here in verse 3, David is inspecting creation, the expansive universe. What, 100 billion stars? God brings them out one by one and calls them each by name. I mean, look at this language, this anthropomorphic language about God's fingers. David intends to help Israel praise Yahweh as the sole creator of everything. These are your heavens, your fingers. God is the owner by creation. Creation is his property. You know, in Psalm 2, we saw that God is the one who sits in the heavens, and now we see the work of God's fingers here. You know, when God's fingers go to work, what happens? You know, he gives shape to the heavens with his fingers. You know, I always wanted to palm a basketball, you know, with those big, long fingers. I, obviously, I couldn't. <laughs> You know, I grew up watching Michael Jordan palm the, palm the basketball, you know. It was amazing. My kids have Psalm 8 memorized, and Kara helps them act it out. When I look up at your heavens which your fingers made, and I see the moon and the stars which you have set in place. It's like... That's amazing. It's permanent when God sets them in place. But if the heavens are the work of his fingers, what about his work through the people God created? Notice this question, this rhetorical question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? How should we understand this question? This is the key verse. This is the exact center of the hymn. Anyone studying, anyone interested in studying mankind, what we call anthropology, or the Imago Dei, is interested right here. You go to any textbook that's studying anthropology from a biblical worldview, this verse is going to be in the index. It's right here. What is man? 
So what is the answer to this rhetorical question? Man is nothing. God is so transcendent. Humans are like just little dots on a map when everything is drawn to scale. We seem so trivial and insignificant. But the right answer is the wrong answer. Here's the paradox. God is majestic, but so are humans. Human beings are God's greatest creation. Do we have significance or meaning? Yes. What gives us value? God gives us value. Irenaeus, the early church father, said it so well. The glory of God is man fully alive. Yes, God's majesty, his splendor can be seen when you look up at the night sky. But God's majesty and splendor can also be seen today in the theater when you look to your right or to your left and see your fellow man. Tell your kids how beautiful they are. Tell your spouse this too. Give them a high five. Don't wait until someone is is gone to tell them how beautiful they are and how much you love them. But wait. God's glory gets even closer to home. His glory and splendor can be seen when you look in the mirror. Yes. You are God's glory on display. What dignity. Look in the mirror. Not to boost our self-esteem. I mean, being made in the image of God has, has, has nothing to do with our physical form, per se. I mean, Psalm 8's not a poetic selfie. I mean, when I look in the mirror and I see my mole to the right-hand side of my nose, I mean, I'm not extremely happy about it. But you know what? Who cares? God put it right there, just like he placed the stars. We look in the mirror to boost our God esteem. Who does God say you are? You're mine. I I love the gospel in a nutshell. Like I loved you, but I lost you and I want you back forever. I realize there's tons of footnotes to add here. And if I had time, I would add them. And you know that's true, those of you who've been with me. This question is fundamental about who are you? How do you think of yourself? I love that scene in the movie Miracle on Ice, you know, when, when they realize, you, that movie's incredible. When we beat the Russians, oh, I love that movie. I don't even play hockey. I play pond hockey in Iowa. I love that scene in the movie when they realize they're playing for the United States of America, when the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back. The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself, the way in which he understands his nature and destiny. Notice the two verbs here. God is mindful of you and he cares for you. This is divine intervention. It changes the destiny of mankind. God has a plan for us and he understands our situation. He comes to enable us to do what we were commissioned to do. You know, there may be cheap lies in your head. The scolding you hear, the shaming you feel, this is not God talking to you. When your heavenly father breaks through the noise of who you aren't and he speaks his truth to you, it's powerful. Only then can you have appropriate interactions with other humans. 
So you matter more than you know. You are royalty. The world is bloodthirsty to tell you otherwise. Is God up there rolling his eyes at you? No, you matter. You know, she matters. The guy or girl you think is just pixels on a screen, he or she is real. And they were probably degraded and abused into that situation. And you know what I mean. Accept the way that God sees them. Show them respect by seeing them as an image bearer. You know, the word pornography is a word we use often in our house. Because we want our kids to hear it at home first. Before they hear it anywhere else. And I mean that. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be, I get up on a bully pulpit and I pontificate. But it's true. Let's keep moving. You've, verse 5, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. I mean, the point again seems clear. We're the apex of God's creation. We have not evolved from animals despite what some of the philosophers say. I mean, Aristotle thought that humans were just political animals trying to persuade each other of a position of rule. We're not just religious animals either. We're not just biological machines. This is the denigration of God's creation. When you put Psalm 8 against these worldly philosophies, this psalm begins to shine. You've crowned him with glory and honor. We're, we're the crown of God's creation. These are royal qualities associated with kingship. I mean, I loved climbing into bed with Kara at night after getting the kids into bed. We'd watch The Crown on Netflix. Oh, I loved it. One of the highlights. I guess it was all the royalty in history. I mean, human beings were made to rule the world. We're unique in this way. We're made in God's image. I love how Ray Ortland puts it. As a God-created man, you have every right to see yourself as God's. You have every right to see yourself as crowned with glory and honor. You don't have to make this true. It is true. Your creation was your coronation. This means that racism is detestable. This means that the murder of innocent human beings is abhorrent. This means that injustice and oppression against other image bearers is against God's design. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. This is the cultural mandate from Genesis 1, 26. This is the role of Adam and Eve in, in the garden. Adam was to rule the world for God. Our work, our desire to exercise dominion was pre-fall. I mean, I love my dad. He's a, he's a farmer in Pennsylvania. You know, he got into, he bought this humongous excavator, massive it's huge, and he loves to run that thing, you know. I'm like, Dad, what are you doing today? He's like, uh, I'm moving the earth. He's like, you see that tree? You don't see that tree. Ah, exercise dominion over the earth. You see that hill? Now you don't. Bulldoze the snot out of that thing. It's amazing. Having dominion. This means stewardship. Dominion is stewardship. You need to think in terms of your vocation as stewardship. We have a noble and humble role as rulers and stewards of creation. Believers will need to discover the capacities that we've been given to them, that have been given to them, and how to use them correctly. 
to do the will of God in this world. This psalm is a reminder that we're here on this earth with divinely ordained responsibility. So be brave while you find your lane. And when you find it, you run hard. Notice all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. You know, for me, whether you're taming a wild steer or getting trampled by one. I mean, I grew up in 4-H. My heart's in Wayland Valley. My heart is not here. My heart's in Wayland Valley. A chase in my steer. It's true. I got trampled by that steer. Whether you're riding a horse and making a jump. My kids love watching this movie where this blind girl gets on a horse and goes down this slide and jumps. It's amazing. Another favorite movie, Temple Grandin, who developed the corral for cattle farmers. The birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea. I mean, I can't wait to go to Wonders of Wildlife with the kids this February. You know, a few weeks ago, I was at Big Cedar swimming in the lake, and there was this small child. It wasn't one of mine. He's next to me eating his gogurt, you know, that yogurt thing, and he kept dropping it down in the water and then eating it. His dad was like, stop doing that. And then we had all these fish around us, and I'm like, stink, I hate fish. They're like bumping into my legs. I hate fishing. I hate the smell of fish. But when Kara cooks fish, she makes me a burger. But we've been given dominion over the fish of the sea. Notice how the psalm finishes. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Where is Jesus in this psalm? You know, I intentionally skipped over that phrase, son of man. If you're serving communion today, please come forward at this time. As we prepare to remember Jesus this morning, through this symbolic meal. I want to return to the phrase, son of man. This psalm, this psalm begs for connection to Jesus because he was the real human being. He was the perfect human being. We as image bearers of God, we know that we have abused and perverted God's mandate, this mandate to exercise dominion. Our own image has been tainted and marred because those alien forces like sin and death entered into the world and they reigned as reigning powers. Sin is so bad. Those of you, we went through Romans this past spring, and this was, the, this was the line that was impressed upon me. Sin is so bad that it can take something good and distort it. We can't study sin as if it's this abstract category out there. We're actually part of the problem. That's not the end of the story, though. The role for man described in Psalm 8, 6. 
that cultural mandate that David picked up from Genesis 1, 26. It's only fulfilled in Jesus. Look at what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus embodies and fulfills all that was true of Adam, No, death was not part of the original plan, but the Son of God became a man. God raised up a second Adam to accomplish his original purpose in place of the one who failed. God poured out his grace on us through the death of Jesus, the perfect one. And right now, we see God's power perfected in the weakness of those who live and die, relying on the one who raises the dead. We trust in Jesus by faith alone, through Christ alone. It's not our work, it's his. We look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So is creation in submission? Are, we, are all things under God's dominion? Yes, but not fully yes what do I mean here for the church we can say yes because Jesus is the founder of an entire new race of people that's us the church we know this founding happened through the breaking of his body the spilling of his blood he rescued us and he gave us authority over evil sin has no legal claim on our life This is a positive place to be when you think about living for Jesus this week. May that ring in my ears. But we must also admit that things are not yet under God's dominion because we still await for Jesus. There's coming a day when God will eventually put all things under his dominion. God will display that power in his glorious reign when he returns. But until then, let's praise him the way that David does in Psalm 8. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with something and would love, would love to pray with someone, there's going to be people down front here this morning who would love, who would absolutely love to pray with you. Maybe you don't want to look in the mirror. Maybe that's too hard. You know, we know our shame grows in isolation, but it disappears with vulnerability. I hope you float out of church this morning, encouraged. Come, let us pray for you. 
God loves us so much. I want to live for him this week. Come and eat.